So how should we follow up the celebration of Jesus' resurrection and the important reminder that he's alive and he's available to be at work in our lives? How do you, how do you follow up with that? Well, after praying about it and uh, our minister staff believe that we've, we've come up with an approach that we think honors the risen Jesus and hopefully will help speak into our lives how his teaching and his power can, can make a practical difference in our everyday life. So we've entitled a message series we're beginning today, entitled Just Life, as we're going to be looking at very practical ways that we can take the teachings of Jesus, the teaching of Scripture, and apply it to our life to make a real difference. Today we're going to kind of give an overview of that, but uh, next week we're going to talk about how do what does Scripture have to say about parenting and how we can make an influence and impact on our children? And so we want to encourage you to come back for that. Maybe you can think of a parent that would benefit from that as well. We want to encourage you to invite them, and we're going to have a parent-child dedication for those that have uh, babies or young children that would like to, in a public way, commit themselves to raising those children to love uh, to trust and to follow Jesus. And, and if you would like to be a part of that, you can sign up. There's information in the bulletin about that. Um, also, uh, we'll talk about the following week on Mother's Day, about how that we can learn from previous generations and some lessons that we can learn from previous generations, maybe even lessons we can learn from uh, current generations or even younger generations. And then uh, we're going to talk about the next week about how to balance uh, work, life, family, church involvement. How do you balance all that? And then the following week, we're going to talk about what is our place in the church and how can we practically serve and make a difference using our gifts and talents. So we want to encourage you to, to come to these uh, messages, invite others as we learn how to live out this teaching that we talk about here on Sunday. So, but as we begin this series, we want to begin with an overviewing, overreaching question. How would you fill in the blank, life is? How would you, how would you communicate that? You know, I, uh, every Saturday evening, I meet with 5.30 with folks that work on Sundays, just to preview the message with them. That way they get to hear a message even if they work on Sundays. But Last night, as I shared it with some folks that came to that, one guy said, life is a box of chocolates. You know, he's influenced by Forrest Gump, okay? So, uh, I don't know how you would answer that. How would, you, how would you get to the very essence of what life is all about? How would you summarize what the focus of life should be? Preparing for this message, reading, talking with others, came up with some sayings that Others have tried to define what life is all about. I'm not saying I agree with all these. I'm just saying these are some statements out there. See if you agree with them. See if maybe you can relate to some of these. Some say life is just something you get through. In other words, they're simply trying to survive as they're on this planet. Others say life is meaningless and full of suffering. Now, that seems to me pretty fatalistic and a bleak worldview, and yet we don't want to make light of the fact that, that many people go through suffering in this life, that some are experiencing great suffering and that just life's 
tough, and I get that. The third response that's a little bit more positive, life is about experiencing as much as you can. And in contrast to those first two, this is a more opportunistic uh, way of approaching life, trying to grab the gusto of life, or maybe, as some would say, trying to drink or savor the very nectar of life. Others say life is about fulfilling personal desires. Now, that's more of a hedonistic worldview, which views life as really just the purpose of the pursuit of pleasure. Others say life is to find yourself, to think for yourself. That's how Socrates defined it. And yet, in that midst of of personal seeking out personal identity, is there room or answer for the other, whether it be our Creator or whether it be uh, our neighbor. Others say life is about finding happiness wherever you can. It doesn't have to be pleasure. It could be, uh, it could be experience. It could be adventure. It could be events. It could be accomplishment. Along that line, so others say life is competition, whether it's in the realm of sports, academics, you know, your class rank, or getting a degree behind your name, work, promotions, or a title at work, self-improvement, maybe it's fitness, some goals that you've set for yourself. For some, they just define life as competition. Others say life is about gaining more comfort and avoiding discomfort or just feeling good. I don't know if any of those speak to you, if you can relate to them, or possibly you can relate to the comedian George Carlin who said, life is simply a series of dogs, okay? As you go through life, you define different seasons of your life by what dog you have. Now, on the subject of dogs, I wanted to give you an update. Uh, those of you who've been coming here regularly, you know that at Christmas time, I shared that uh, my Christmas gift, it wasn't my only Christmas gift, but it was my big Christmas gift to my wife. I said, okay, here's the gift. You've been wanting a dog for years. I've been resisting the idea my Christmas gift is the pledge, let's go get a dog. Okay, well, she researched the whole tri-state area, okay? She wanted to find just that right dog, because I, I said I don't want a dog that jumps on me when I come in the house. I don't want a dog barking at me or shedding because I've got allergies and all these things. So I put a pretty high bar, and she, she researched it. And um, so the day after Easter... We drove to Indiana. She found a breeder there in our hometown, so we visited my mom, and we were picked up our puppy. It's a Cavapoo, okay? I, and I explain to you later what a Cavapoo is, but here he is, all three pounds of him, okay? And believe it or not, his, the breeder there in Indiana named him Brutus. Now, some thought that was a sign that I should convert from my team growing up in Indiana, Purdue University to Ohio State. But uh, I'm not reading that as a sign. Uh, in fact, when I found out he's only two to three pounds, I think he's hit three pounds now, he doesn't look much like a Brutus, okay? So we said, we're going to come up with a new name. Now, some people have gotten way into this too much, okay? I've been getting emails and texts of what I should name this puppy. You know, I find it interesting. I can work on these messages. I can research 
commentaries. I can spend hours working on the message and feel really good about the content, the theological uh, underpinnings and everything of the message. And then the only thing that people want to talk to me after the sermon is what puppy we're going to get, okay? And, and, and yet with that said, one person submitted a number of names. They know I'm a former math teacher, so these are some of the names they came up with. A former math teacher from Indiana, and I like some of these numbers. Okay, that kind of combines math and the book of uh, the Bible. Uh, pi, I thought that was creative. Newton or Fibonacci, if you don't know who they are, uh, go study your math history, okay? Uh, boiler, uh, I like that. Uh, Indiana Jones, or just Indy for short. Those were all good. But we felt led by the fact that the breeder named this little puppy Brutus. And that's the mascot of Ohio State. So we leaned into the mascot of Purdue, which is Purdue Pete. And so we've named this little guy Pete. And uh, we just hope he doesn't get that confused with the word P, okay? But, uh, but uh, if you want to stop by our house sometime, we're trying to introduce Pete to people. And, uh, and he's growing on me, okay? My wife's love at first sight, but uh, he's growing on me. Uh, Yet we're not suggesting with my sharing about our puppy that life's simply about puppy dogs and seashells. Instead, we want to look a little bit deeper than that today. We want to look at what Jesus had to say about life, his definition for life. In fact, I believe we can really get insight into what our attitude should be toward life and how we should live life from Jesus' most famous sermon. It's a sermon that's found in the Bible in Matthew, uh, in fact, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, you could turn there, or a Bible app, as we're going to work our way through just some of the highlights of this great sermon today, and some of the life lessons that Jesus taught in it. By the way, as I read and prepared for this message, I I read what a number of people had to say about the Sermon on the Mount, listened to other messages through podcasts on the Sermon on the Mount. And one particular speaker that I listened to quite often, he was introducing one of his talks on the Sermon on the Mount, and he started his talk with, he said, what you're about to hear is going to be the best message you've ever heard. And I thought, that's pretty bold. And then he went on to say, in fact, I guarantee you this is the best message you will ever hear. And I thought, now that goes over the top. That's that's being arrogant. And then he did something I didn't expect. He had memorized the Sermon on the Mount. And he just recited it. I thought, okay, I get it. I don't think my memory's that good, but, but I thought that would be cool. Because it really is a great sermon. And if nothing else from today's message that you get out of it is, I hope you'll go home and read this great sermon. It won't take you long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because I believe in this great message of Jesus, you'll find out what life is really all about. But let's read the setting, first of all, for these life lessons in Matthew 5, verse 1. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. 
I think in this introduction to this great message, we see two types of people that were drawn to Jesus. There's, there's one group of people that, G, that Matthew simply describes as the crowd. There's a crowd that's gathered. And Jesus drew crowds. That's a good thing. And in fact, maybe sometimes the crowds were drawn for impure motives. Maybe they'd heard that Jesus performed miracles. Maybe they thought if they showed up, they'd get to see one of Jesus' miracles. Maybe they just wanted to see a show. But then there's other people that maybe were first drawn into the crowd But they see that Jesus has the answer for life, that that his teaching really makes a difference. And they're drawn into the point that they say, we don't want to just be a part of the crowd. We want to to really follow Jesus. We want to take his teaching to heart and apply it to our life. Those are the people here Matthew describes as disciples. The word disciple just literally means a student, a learner. Someone says, hey, I will be a student of Jesus. I'll be a learner of Jesus. I will not just learn from him. I will follow it. I follow his example. I'll put his teaching into practice in very intentional and practical ways. It seemed to us, it seemed to me that the week after Easter, and by the way, we're thrilled that a crowd was drawn last weekend. But we want to go beyond just drawing crowds. We want to help people be drawn to Jesus in such a way that they truly live out our mission as a church to be following him, to follow Jesus, and to live a life as a disciple and in turn be making disciples. Well, just like Jesus drew people out of the crowd, we want to make sure here at Southwest that we're drawing people out of the weekend crowd into a closer walk with Jesus. And so one thing that we emphasize here regularly is the importance of small groups. Because we think in that setting of four to 12 people where you talk about Jesus' teaching in practical ways and you live it out and help each other learn how to apply those teachings in your life, that that's where we can really help each other grow in our discipleship of what it means to be a student, a learner of Jesus. Now, in this setting where Jesus calls his disciples to them, he begins to teach them. And he gives a list of a series of eight or nine blessings. He begins with each one of them and saying, blessed are you if. Now, this, this word blessing is, is by one translator translated as wonderful news. But yet it's hard to define. How do you define this word blessed or blessed? We don't even quite know how to say it when we read Jesus. Is it blessed or blessed? And, and oftentimes, the only time we hear it is, is maybe when somebody's trying to give praise to God. I, I love sports, and I hear it quite often after, the, you know, after a game and somebody's being interviewed, they maybe scored the winning goal, they hit the home run that scored the winning run. Maybe, maybe they were in the NFL draft and went first round, and I heard a number of those guys say, I feel so blessed. But what does that mean? We hear that word tossed around, but what does it mean? Well, the original word that Matthew uses here as he's recording what Jesus said is this Greek word, makorio. It's it's a word that's hard to translate. Uh, 
it, it most commonly is just translated blessed. Some have translated it happy. Happy are you if you do this. The problem is happy just doesn't get to the depth of this word. Because you see, sometimes we can be happy with happenings, but then if the happenings stop, we're no longer happy. This word is, a, is, is describing an inner joy, a contentment, a, a state of being that isn't affected by the circumstances around us. We can be facing some tough circumstances, but we still have that inner joy, that peace, that contentment. That's the word that Jesus is using here. As I listened to John Ortberg's message on the Sermon on the Mount, he defined it in a way I never heard anybody define it before. He says, in many ways, when Jesus says, blessed are you if you do these things, he's really saying, if you'll take this to heart, you can live the dream. I like that. One of the guys around here that helps lead our men's ministry, Derek Tincher, often when I go up to Derek, I say, how you doing, Derek? He'll say, I'm living the dream, Roger. I like that. I like that. I think Jesus is saying, if you want to live the dream, if you want to live the dream that God really intended for you to live, you've got to embrace about what I'm, embrace what I'm about to say. And he gives a list of eight or nine of them. The last one, I'm not sure if it's second part or if it's a separate one, but but the truth of it is we're not going to have time to get through all of them, but we're going to hit four or five of them. And we're going to contrast that to, to some of what the world has to say, the culture around us has to say about what real happiness is. But before we get into it, I just, I want to read this quote from N.T. Wright, a guy who wrote about this sermon. He says, He says, this passage, he describes it this way. He says, follow me, Jesus said to the first disciples, because in him, the living God was doing a new thing in this list of wonderful news. That's how N.T. Wright described it. It's part of his invitation, part of his summons. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. And these beatitudes in particular, they are summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because the future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we're called to believe with great daring that it is in fact the right way up. Try it and see. So let's read some of these upside down values of Jesus and let's see if they, in, in reality, if they aren't right side up as we make some life application. Now earlier, I threw out one quote of life is just something you get through. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, personally, I don't think Jesus is saying there's anything inherently good about being poor. And yet I do believe that Jesus is saying instead of simply viewing life as something to endure, we need to understand that we can really live the dream no matter what our current circumstances might be, no matter what the balance on our bank statement might say, that we can begin to 
put our focus and our confidence not in stuff, but in a relationship with Him. You know, I think it's when we learn not to to look to stuff, but we look instead to our Creator, that we can really find help. Some have described being poor in spirit as being spiritually bankrupt. You've come to that point where you say, listen, I'm not living life the way I want to live. There's, there's some habits, there's some, there's some sin, there's some things that I'm snared by, and, and, and I can't overcome that by myself. And when we get to the point where we're spiritually bankrupt, where we're poor in spirit, we say, I need to look to a, a power greater than myself. I like how the Message Bible reads, you're blessed, you're living the dream when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. Have you come to that point where you realize you don't have the answer for life and the problems of life within yourself? And stuff's not going to answer that. It's God. And it's looking to Him as the answer. Now, we also said earlier that some say life is meaningless and full of suffering. Now, Jesus seems to weigh into that. In Matthew 5, verse 4, He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, as we said earlier, we're, we're not t- making light of something, of any recent loss that anybody has suffered here. Because we understand that when we go through loss, whether it be a loss of a loved one, whether it be a a loss of a relationship, whether it be a loss of a job, loss of a dream, that there's grief that accompanies that. And we're not making light of that. And in fact, as a church, we try to provide some material on grief to anybody that's suffered loss in their life. And yet, Jesus is saying that even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of of mourning, we can find meaning for life. We can find hope for the future. We have a number of families here at Southwest that are my heroes. They've suffered loss in their life. They've suffered loss of loved ones. And yet, they have continued to persevere in their faith, and they've continued to be great examples of individuals that have found meaning in life even in the midst of mourning and grief. I could list a number of those examples. But one that I reached out and got permission for today is the Owen family, Glenn and Donnie Owen. I share with them often, they're an inspiration to me. A number of years ago, they, they lost their dear daughter at far too young of an age, at least from our perspective. And I know that was, there was, there was mourning, there was grief. That was a tough, tough loss in their life. And by the way, when, whenever I'm called into those situations, I mean, wow, what do you say? When someone's lost a loved one unexpectedly, honestly, there's nothing to say. The only thing that I try to do is point that person to a creator, to a God who cares deeply for them. And I try to paint a picture of God that, that I see in Jesus because when Jesus was, was mourning for the loss of his friend Lazarus, 
And even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he, the Bible says that he wept when Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, wept. That shows me a picture of a God that weeps when we weep. A God that's right beside us when we're mourning and we've had the wind knocked out of us with grief. And yet, I want to get back to the Owen family because they've been an inspiration to me because there were some, there were some very tough days. And yet, in those tough days, they, they continue to say, how can God be honored? How can our daughter be honored? even in the midst of this loss. And so they set up a foundation in her name. And they've raised money to help support some of the things that she had passion about, whether it be education or mission work in Haiti that she was so passionate about. I find inspiration in somebody that even in their mourning, they found meaning and purpose the Message Bible sheds light on this subject when it reads, you're blessed when you f- feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You see, it's in our morning that we can turn to God and find strength and find meaning for life, even in the midst of loss. Well, back to some of our earlier statements. Some say life is about experiencing as much as you can. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, we typically don't think about meek, being a meek person, as a good thing. In fact, because it rhymes with weak, I think a lot of people just think meek and weak mean the same thing, but it doesn't. But it's interesting, this, this word meek has, has suffered throughout the years. The, the ancient Greeks viewed meekness as a vice. Yet the word, if you really dig into the word, what does it mean to be a meek individual? The, the word literally means strength under control. It's my understanding that, that in the ancient world that the Greeks used this to define a horse trained for battle. If you could picture with me a wild stallion that's brought down from the mountain and it's broken for riding. The horse continues to retain its fierce spirit, courage, and power, but now it's under the discipline of a master. And it can stop and turn at the slightest nudge of its master. They're described as meek horses, not weak but now strength under control. Jesus is saying, if you really want to live life the way that God intended, if you really want to live the dream, Jesus says, you've got to make sure that you surrender to to God. You've got to surrender to, to His, God's Son's leadership to relinquish control and let Jesus control your life. The Message Bible says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You see, when we're meek and we surrender to God's leadership, then we begin to experience some things that you can't put a price tag on, things like love and joy and peace and contentment. We said earlier that some define life as life is about fulfilling personal desires. 
Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For some of us, following Jesus means that we need to learn to develop a whole new appetite. The Message Bible reads this way, you're blessed, you're really living life when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. As mentioned earlier, Socrates said, life is to find yourself, think for yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't teach the importance of having integrity and being truthful with our Creator, ourself, and others. He did. And yet, Jesus also talked about how to have great relationships with others. And a key of great relationship is forgiveness and mercy. You see, the truth of it is we're humans. We're flawed individuals, and we'll hurt the people even that we love the most. And they will hurt us. And yet the key for us to to make it through that and to have great relationships is to learn this, this piece of mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I'm convinced that it's in finding the forgiveness and mercy that Jesus extends to us that we can find the strength and the direction to forgive others. Well, we don't have time to go through all these Beatitudes, although they're great. Maybe you'll be inspired to read them and dig into these, what they mean more. But I want to just make an observation before we close, uh, or concluding points. But some life observation. As you keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount, not once, but six times in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, but I tell you. You see, part of following Jesus is to be willing to let go of what maybe we've heard in the past, maybe what we've believed in the past or what we've valued in the past, and to truly trust that Jesus has a better way, that Jesus' words and Jesus' teaching are true, and that his values, even though they might seem upside down, are better. You see, in this sermon, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't be angry in your heart toward your brother. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust in your heart after someone else. Jesus says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy. I say, pray for your enemy. You see, Jesus takes these teachings. That doesn't mean they're easy. In fact, some of them are, I would describe as inconvenient truths. I don't necessarily like them, but they're true. And when I apply them to my life, it works. And life's better. And I can live the dream that God had planned for me all along. Well, what's the answer? Really, the answer life is not in any of this other stuff we said at the beginning. Life is found in a relationship with Jesus, true life. It's found in building your life upon his teaching and his values. As we close, I want to close with how Jesus closed this great sermon with a story. And I'm just gonna read the story. And I wanna ask you, as I ask myself, who are you, who am I in this story? There's two different people. Which describes you? In Matthew 7, I'm gonna read out of the message, Bible because I just love how it reads. And maybe a little different than we've heard before and it'll hopefully seep into our heart as we talk about a life foundation. Matthew 7, verse 24. 
These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the the crowd burst into applause. Can you hear that? They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything that he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religious teachers. This was the best teaching they'd ever heard. Some translations read that Jesus taught with authority. Where do you think that authority was? Well, he was God in the flesh, yes. But I think there was great authority in that he was living this life that he taught. Are you living that life? A way to look at that is, well, what foundation have you built for your life? Now, Jesus is very clear. There's two ways that you can build a foundation. You're either going to build it upon the rock of his teaching or you're going to build it upon sand. Now, as you watch the news, there's some beautiful houses in California that are that are right by the beach, but when the mudslides come, they're not too pretty. And sometimes our lives can look real good, but there's no real foundation, and when the hardship comes, it can crumble. Jesus says there's a better way. Build your life upon his teachings. And if we do, he says, then we'll have a foundation for life that no matter what life comes, you can have a peace, a contentment, this blessed sense of joy that circumstances can't touch. Are you building your life wisely? Are you building it foolishly? I like how it says, it doesn't mean that you just know some Bible phrases or can throw them around at a Bible study. Are you applying it? We close Every service here at Southwest or every weekend, we make sure that sometime during the service we have communion. And during today's communion, as we remember Jesus' death on the cross, we remember his love and his sacrifice, we're reminded of not just Jesus' words, but his deeds for us. And I think it's important, one of the reasons why we do have communion every weekend is because we want to make sure as a church that we are being a people that are having our foundation of our life built upon the person of Jesus and what he's accomplished for us in the cross. But during this time of communion, as you remember his body when we take the bread and you remember his blood as we take the cup, I want you to do some self-examination. Where are you building your life? What foundation? Is it the rock of Jesus' teaching? Or is it the sand of popular opinion? What are you building your life on? If you want to live the dream, build it on Jesus. Let's pray.
Dear God, thank you. Thank you for what a good God you are. Thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that Jesus taught with such brilliance and with such power, but he lived it out. And we thank you for what he did for us on the cross. Help us remember that during this time of communion. But Lord, help us examine our lives and help us ask ourselves, are we really building our life on the right foundation? Help us do some reflection. Maybe make some decisions during this time of communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.